If you, if you have a Bible, if you want to open up to Genesis uh, chapter 8. We'll be in Genesis chapter 8 this morning. Just a question, have, have you ever went through a trial, a hard season, thinking like, I don't think this is ever going to end. It's just, it's going on and on and on, and it's like you can't see the light, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel, and it just keeps going. Well, last week we looked at no, the flood, right? Noah and his sons, and they built this ark, and they got into this ark, and the waters came down from the heavens and opened up from the earth below, and judgment came upon the world, and then, so Noah's in this ark with his family, with seven others, with all the animals. Like sometimes it would have been noisy, maybe other times quiet, and like waiting. Waiting. Like we, we, we can't really comprehend being stuck in a boat as the earth is flooded, uh, you know, for a good part of a year. But, but like that's what's happening as we're looking at Genesis chapter eight. The families in the ark, they're waiting. When, when's this gonna end? They're watching. But we see in Genesis 8, it does end. We're going to be looking at, uh, at what, how kind of the flood comes to an end and learning a number of things through the scripture this morning. If you want to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word, looking at Genesis chapter 8. <clears throat> but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. Looking here at Genesis 8, I've, I've titled the message, New Beginnings. And we want to pull out a number of things from the scripture. One is we want to continue to look and think about who God is. What can we learn about God as we read this passage? What can we learn about scripture as we read this passage? I'm just going to highlight, you're going to see in a little bit. I don't know if you notice all the time stamps. Hey, this many months on this day, this many days, over and over again. We know, what, what can we learn from that? We're also going to see like how Noah and his family, how they went through a trial and God kept them. <laughs> and God brought them out of that. And then we're going to see and kind of look at in the end, and what was Noah's response after going through the trial, going to the ark and coming out. And what can we learn from that for ourselves? So first I want you to look at verse 1 again with me. I want you to see that you can have hope today because God is faithful. Look at verse one with me, it says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered. There was a promise God made to Noah, his family and animals, and it's kept. Genesis 6, 18, God says this, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons with you, then all the creatures as well. God made a, a promise he was going to put them in the ark and keep them. And God remembered the covenant. Derek Kinder says this, when the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. If you just think of a number of places where this also appears, I'll just read it for you, Genesis 19, 29. When, when God is, uh, first before that, God's talking with Abraham and they're looking down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And say, hey, are we, are we going to destroy this place? But then, you know, God, talking with Abraham, Abraham's like, well, what about Lot? What about the righteous people that are there? And it says in, in Genesis 19, 29, so it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered the promises he made to Abraham and spared Lot's life. It's not that God ever forgets then there's Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. As the Israelites found themselves in Egypt and under slavery to the Egyptians, it says in Exodus 2, 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God made all these promises to these people and God is faithful to his promises. God remembered, even in the New Testament, in Luke 1, 54 to 55, when Mary finds out she's gonna give birth to Christ, and she has this kind of a song of praise, she says this at the end, speaking of God, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, 
as he swore to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. God made this promise that from uh, Abraham's seed, someone was gonna come, right? The Messiah was gonna come. God remembered. God never forgets. God is faithful. To say God remembered Noah, Alan Ross says, is to say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah by intervening to end the flood. And not only did God remember Noah and his family, it also it highlights God remembered the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembers the animals too. God cares about the animals. We see this in Jonah. At the end of Jonah, uh, God is talking to Jonah and saying like, Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed. Jonah's upset. And God said, no, we had, we had mercy on these people. There's like 150,000 who don't, or 120,000 who don't know their left hand from their right, maybe like babies. And there's also much cattle. You don't want to just destroy this for nothing. God cared about the animals that were there. We also see this in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus says this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God feeds the birds. In, in Matthew 10, 29, there's two sparrows are sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground outside of the Father. God cares for the animals. He remembered the animals in the boat just as he remembered Noah in them. And so I want you to see here, just in that first verse, I want us to increase our understanding of God. I don't know about you, but my understanding, my thought of God is never, it's not complete. It needs to keep increasing. Who God is, like, okay, I know God is faithful. I want to tell you again, God is faithful, and that should expand our view of who God is. God is faithful. When we read promises of our Lord that have yet to be fulfilled, we can rest assured it will happen. Why? Because God is faithful. And I just want to just think about just kind of one example for us about God's work in our lives. If you are in Christ, and maybe some, some days it's just like you're just stumbling along. <laughs> I want to I be more like Jesus, but I'm not. But I love the Lord, and I want to keep growing in that. I just want to remind you that God is faithful and just bring some of these promises we find in the New Testament before you. In Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul wrote this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. He remembers his people. And I just want to share this great promise with you found in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, and just to think about like God in our lives as we're like, man, I want to be more like Jesus, but I'm not. Like, Lord, be at work in me. But God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he make you holy. May he change you. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like it's such an awesome promise. We're like, God, I don't see this happening in my life. But the next verse says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I just want to remind you, when God remembered Noah, we see he is faithful. God is faithful in our lives. And we see these promises in scripture. He's going to keep us until the end. He's going to pre present to us before the Father, holy and blameless. 
And we can trust in that, even if we don't see it in our lives right now. If you're in Christ, if you have his spirit in you, we can trust in that because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. So God remembering there at the beginning of Genesis just highlights God is faithful. Next, I want us to see quite clearly you can trust the Bible because it teaches history. All throughout, I think that's really highlighted in this passage in Genesis chapter eight. Last week I talked about is this fact or fiction? Well again, we're talking about facts as we talk about Noah and the flood. I just want you to note all the time references. It's not this obscure language of like some fairy tale. It's talking about this many days, this happened. This month, this happened. Over and over again. If you look at that with me, look at Genesis 8, verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually at the end of 150 days. The waters had abated, had receded. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. There's all these time stamps over and over again. This many days happened at the start of this month on this day. We see in verse two, or the and, and start of verse three, the waters were receded from the earth continually. So the whole earth was flooded with water. What happened to the water? Where did it go? I found Sir Fatty helpful here. He wrote this, waters could cover the whole globe to a great depth if the solid surface was, solid surface was very smooth. So the converse is true. To end the global flood, the surface would need to become less smooth. The mountains of today's world were largely uplifted during and after the flood. This very uplift combined with the sinking of the ocean floors would produce the unevenness required. Leon or Morris is helpful here as well. He wrote, winds, waves, and evaporation could hardly account in themselves for more than a minor lowering of water levels. Somehow there must also be a drastic rearrangement of the topography with continental land masses rising from the waters and ocean basins deepening and widening to receive the waters draining off the lands. So before the flood, the mountains were actually lower. And as the earth was completely flooded and kind of like as the water was receded, it seemed to like, I don't know, the continental plates hitting each other and that which was the ocean floor was uplifted. That's why we find so much marine life too up in the mountains. A brother pointed to me last week. As I mentioned, a friend was finding crustaceans up in the mountains. It's not because the waters were that high at that point. They were, they covered everything. But it's because after the flood, everything was uplifted, upheaved. And then even in the ocean, it was opened up in greater recesses for the waters to go in there. It seems to speak of that in Psalm 104, verses 4 to 9. I'm just going to read that for you. Psalm 104, verses 4 to 9. Or verse five, sorry. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Speaking of God, you covered it with the deep as with a garment, the flood. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not cover the earth again. Amazing what we see here as the waters start to recede. 
And it says, God made a wind blow over the earth there in verse one and the water subsided. But it was more than that, the opening up of the valleys and the mountains rising higher. And where, where did the ark land? In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. But and then it says in verse five, the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And some people had a trouble with that. Like, how did the ark rest on the mountains, but then the mountains weren't seen until the next verse? It's like the bottom of the ark, right? Not all the ark is out of the water. It's heavy. It's in the water. And it rested on top of the mountains. And then a time later, as the water started to recede, then you could see the tops of the mountains. But the mountains of Ararat... Again, I'm leaning on Sarfati here. He writes this, they're a, they're a mountain range in modern-day Turkey. In modern geographic terms, it's in the country of Turkey. In geological terms, on the Armenian Plateau. That's what uh, this, this uh, bunch of mounds are called. Since the Armenian Plateau extends into Iran, there's also a Persian word to describe it. It's notable. Ku'inu. Does that mean anything to anyone? Probably not, but I probably mispronounced it anyways. <laughs> It means Noah's mountains. That's what, it's, that's what they speak of in, in the Persian language. That's what they call this plain Noah's mountains. Is the ark still there on Mount Ararat? Ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who, who wrote in Jesus' time, he thought it was there. He spoke of many other ancient um, historians as well that spoke of the ark and people witnessing and people coming down uh, from the mountain. Actually, in, uh, in Flood Fossils by Vance Nelson, he brings forth a number of different stories of eyewitness accounts. Very, very compelling of people who, who were up there and happened to see the ark. And so again, I'm just putting this before you and preparing this message. I'm like, oh, I want to just spend more time reading this. So interesting. We're dealing with facts, not fiction. But even, even though, I'll just say all this, though, if you never saw Noah's Ark or it was never found, it doesn't change the fact of the biblical and geological evidence for the, for the flood. It's so clear. It's so plain. But again, notice all these, these time stamps, if you will. In verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the Ark that he had made. Right? They're just like, they're waiting. They don't know exactly when. They're going to be able to go on to dry land. He's watching and waiting. In the sense, he's in the midst of a trial, like, will it ever end? And then we're going to look back at the story of the, of the dove, and that whole story is stamped with time. Seven days this happened, and seven days that happened. And you look at verse 13. In the 601st year, in the, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. I think that's Noah's birthday. I think that's how we're measuring time in this, is like Noah being alive 601 years on the first day of the first month, that would be his birthday. And at that time, he was able to take off somehow the top of the ark and be able to see further, still wondering, when is it going to be dry enough? And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And again, look, verse 14, in the second month, on the 20. On the 27th day of the month, this is 56 days after verse 13, the earth had dried out. Like, I just noticed that reading, like over and over again, there's all these times. Why is that? Because we're dealing with facts. We're dealing with history. This is the time frame that it happened in. This is Noah. He's like, when am I going to be able to walk on the earth again? 
we see this in, in these verses. We see the process of the flood stopping, the water receding, the earth drying up. This, friends, is given to us as history. We should believe it as such. Because the Bible is much more than history. It's the very word of God, but it's teaching something that happened in a time, in a place, on this earth. That's what we can see in this passage. Going back to, um, to verse 6, I want us to see the story of the dove. I want us to see the symbol of peace. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Well, why a raven? One commentator, Matthew, says this, the raven is a scavenger and so could easily find food from the rotting carcasses in the floodwaters, right? That's just the reality. There was no need to return to the ark because it could rest on the mountaintops. And a rabbinic tradition, like the rabbis in the past, they taught that the raven was released first as expendable since it was neither good for food nor sacrifice. Like it wasn't good to eat and it wasn't one of the clean animals, so like maybe that's why it was released first. But we see Noah, he's wondering, when can we go on dry land? Look at verse eight. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Even the, the language there, the dove found no place to set her foot. It's actually like the dove found no place to rest. I don't know if you remember, like Noah's name means rest. And, and, and his actually father, uh, Lamech, he said this about Noah, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, Genesis 5, 29, this one shall bring us relief, or this one shall bring us rest. Noah was thought to bring rest. And th so that's it. In the ark, it actually rested on top of the mountains, but the dove had no place to lay her foot, no place to rest. They're still looking for rest. Noah's supposed to bring it. It came in a much different way than they thought it would. But the dove, the dove in Scripture, is a very positive symbol. One commentator pointed this out, depicting youth and love in the Song of Songs, but depicting innocence in Matthew 10, 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And even in Jesus' baptism, like the Holy Spirit, the Father says, this is my son who I'm well pleased with as Jesus comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove. So a very positive uh, picture in the Bible for a dove. So Noah had brought the dove back in in verse 10. He waited another seven days. Again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening. And why in the evening? It's because the dove flew longer. The dove was out longer. That's what's just being highlighted. It had more maybe ground to cover. And in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters have subsided from the earth. Think about how Noah would have been so excited. Like we read this story, we're familiar with this story, but like he's stuck in an ark for like almost a year and sending out these animals and it comes back with, with some green, an, an olive leaf. Like how pumped they would have been just to see that little piece of green. How hopeful they would have been. How joyful. And then we know as the, as the story goes on, in verse 11, and the dove came back to him in the evening, or sorry, in verse 12, then he waited another seven days 
and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. I don't know if he was excited about that too. <laughs> the dove didn't come back because it was being told him, right, that, okay, more and more land was opened, more and more water was receding. But I don't know if you, you realize this, if you, if you know it, I hope so, the dove and olive branch is like a universal picture of peace. Like throughout the world, it's known if you just show the picture of a dove and olive branch, it like symbolizes peace. And people forget like, well, where did that come from? Well, it came from the Bible. And why did the, why did the olive branch in a dove's mouth symbolize peace? Because the whole earth was flooded. Like we forget what, what happened. Why is that picture peace? Because God judged the world. And everything was covered. And when the olive branch was seen, it's like the waters are starting to recede. So we can maybe know that picture, universal picture of peace, but they forget why that even happened. But as that's a universal picture of peace, I want us to think, what is the picture of peace for Christians? It's the cross. And it's, it's not a universal picture of peace, but it's a picture of peace for the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. Think, think about how crazy this is that as Christians, some of you maybe wear a cross around your neck. A tool that was used for execution, right, and in the Roman times now becomes this picture of hope and peace because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on it. Just think of that symbol. The cross, of what Jesus did on it. May we not forget the cross, the terrible nature of it, what Jesus did to accomplish that, taking our sins, the punishment of God upon himself on it. But any who would believe in him, who would look to him, would be forgiven. And then therefore, then it becomes, it's not a place of execution, becomes a place of hope and peace. And friends, I just want to remind you today, so there's the dove with the with the little olive branch, is universal picture of peace, but the cross is a picture of peace for Christians, but it's not just, it's not a picture, it's actually a reality, it speaks of reality. That in Christ, we have peace. We have peace with God. It's, it says in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, It says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Colossians 1.21.22 says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that was all of us, In Jesus Christ, though, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the cross is a picture of peace for Christians, but it actually points to a reality of the peace that we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit in our lives. I just wanted to point that out to you this morning. And anyone who would hear that, you're like, okay, I I hear that, I've seen that, but I don't know that peace. Oh, friends, I would say call on Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him, and he will save you. 
You call out to him, there is peace to be found with God through Jesus Christ. So we see the, the dove being a symbol of peace universally. The cross, a, a symbol of peace, but not, a, not just a symbol, a reality of peace that we have with God the Father. So I want us to see that there this morning. Looking back in Genesis chapter 8, next I want us to see in verse 15 to 19, God preserves his people through trials. I really want us to see this this morning. God preserves his people through trials. Notice Noah's obedience. He keeps looking. Is the earth dry? Is it ready to put my foot on it? But he never gets off the ark until what? Verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go from the ark. He waits until God says him. He goes into the ark when God tells him. He comes out of the ark when God's telling him. We see, as Noah's obedience is highlighted here. They got on the ark. He was obedient. God closed the door, and God kept them in the midst of the flood. They got off the ark. They were preserved. They were kept by God as God judged the world. I want, I want you to see that. There's a time Noah and his family got on the ark. There was a time, though, they got off the ark. What we can see by that, trials don't last forever. We need to remember that. There's a time limit to them. There's a beginning and an end. Friends, we need to remember this. But I don't want you, like we live in this broken world. We talked about looking at Genesis 3. There's thorns and thistles in the ground. Things don't grow as they should. It's a broken world. Earthquakes and tsunamis and all types of stuff. But then we're broken in our own hearts. We're broken as humanity. And because of that, we experience trials. And it's, it's kind of like either you're, you're in a trial right now or you're, or you're coming out of a trial or you're going to be going into a trial soon. Not being pessimistic, just being realistic like this is life. And there are good times that we celebrate in the midst of all that, but know that trials don't last forever. And we see here with Noah and the ark, God preserves his people through trials. Right? God kept Noah and his family in the ark and they came off. God preserves his people through trials. Uh, Peter highlights this in 2 Peter 2.5. In 2 Peter chapter 2, there's this list of all these different trials that God keeps his people in. There's Noah's highlighted in 2 verse 5. It says this, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God preserved Noah and seven others. God keeps his people in trials. And it says in 2 Peter 2 verse 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's what's being highlighted in 2 Peter. But take that to heart, friends. How he rescued Noah and his family and the animals with him. God preserves and keeps his people through trials. Can anyone say amen to that? Everyone has a story. We all go through hard times in this world. But if you are a Christian, how do you articulate your ability to go through hard times and come out on the other side? How do, you, how do you speak about that? It should just be because of God. Like that's the reality. And sometimes we don't see the reality so clearly. If God would so preserve us and take us out of a trial. We don't see the reality so clearly. It's, it's kind of, it reminds me, not seeing the reality so clearly, of, of my kids in soccer. My youngest is in soccer, Ezra, he's five. My wife was six, so I had to take the coaching this week. 
And Ezra's team was like way more aggressive than the other team. So every time the ball was out, they would kick it into the other net and over and over again. Another team was timid and scared. They're just young, they're just happy to be there. So I was trying to help them. I was literally like holding back Ezra's team and telling the other team like, go near, go near the net. Go n-. And I'm trying to like roll the ball in front and like just, just kick it in. And they still didn't get it. But imagine if, if one of them accidentally kicked it and it went in the net and started celebrating. Goal, I scored a goal, look at me, like I'm the greatest. Look at what I did. But the reality is they did absolutely nothing. They were, they were, they were not that good. <laughs> gotta, be, gotta be careful on those. Luckily, I hope none of them are here. <laughs> but honestly though, friends, like that's it when we come out of a trial, if, if, if we're not like turning back and saying, that was God who brought me out of it, we're like the little kids who accidentally scored a goal and like, look at me, look what I've done. Like, could, did Noah do that coming out of the ark? He's like, I built that ark. That, that was all me. No, it was all God. But when we're going through trials, friends, may we seek the Lord. James 5.13 says this, is any, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And then trust God for the answers. And when you see the answers come, you turn back to God. We see clearly in this text how God preserved Noah and those with him that got off the ark. They were still alive. And what did they do next? What happened next? We see in verses 20 to 22 a new beginning, a pattern to follow. Again, like, maybe I've already hinted at it, but what would be the first thing that would happen is Noah and his family gets off the ark. Would they, would they dance? <laughs> would, they, would they sing? Would there be laughter? Would there be crying? If it, if it was nowadays, would they be taking selfies? <laughs> no, that'd be terrible. <laughs> what happens? Verse 20, then Noah took, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That was the first thing he did off the ark, dry lamb for the first time. Maybe he took some of the, the animals who were like the most noisy. <laughs> you, are, you are a thank offering to the Lord. And, and then he built an altar. This is the first time we see the word altar appear in the, in the Old Testament. What an altar was, it was a, a place kind of stacked up for an animal to be burnt upon. So maybe he took part of the door, I don't know, part of the ark, that all the wood would have been wet, but took something and built an altar to have an animal sacrifice to the Lord. An act of worship. Basically saying, like, God, you're the one who did it. You're the one who took me through this, and I'm praising you. Noah's, in a sense, acknowledging you are God and I am not. I didn't get us out of this mess. Alan Ross says this, the whole burnt offering represented the worshiper's total surrender and dedication to the Lord. An expression of the Lord smelling the sweet fragrance represented God's acceptance. The people of God were to be a worshiping people offering to their, their God the praise of their lips and the best of their possessions. I, I love that the first thing he does, build an altar to the Lord. In this new beginning, like you're starting again, everything was wiped out. How are you going to start? He starts it with worship. He starts it with worship to God. What about me? What about you? When, we, when, when God takes us out of a trial, should we go build an altar? 
Find a sheep. But no, no, we don't do that. Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. He was sacrificed on our behalf. But what should our response be? I don't know about you, like our, our kids, we're constantly trying to teach them to say thank you. If someone, you know, gives us something, provides something for them, like, hey, turn back and say thank you. I think that's what we see Noah doing here, building an altar. Thank you, God. That's what we need to be about coming out of trials and turning back and saying thank you to the Lord. I just want to bring your attention to James 5.13, the second part. I read the first part. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I love it. It's just so simple, the book of James. Are you cheerful? Are you coming out? Are you thankful? Then pray, like praise God. Turn back and give him thanks. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says this, through him, through Jesus, let us continually to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's what we should be about. We should be so quick to turn back and give thanks and to praise God through Jesus Christ. We see for Noah, this is a new beginning. The world got destroyed. And again, here Noah starts out well, building an altar and worshiping. That's how he begins. How do you start new things? Thinking about coming out of a trial, but anything new. How do you start a new day, a new month, a new year? Is this a good pattern to follow? Friends, that, that our lives should be full of praise to God, full of prayer to God. Can every new beginning be marked first by praise? As God takes us through the trials of life when they end, we need to stop and turn back and give thanks and praise. Every new beginning should be marked by that praise and prayer every day. I don't know if you've ever read stuff about like, you ever see stuff about successful entrepreneurs and they're always like, they start at like 4.30 in the morning and they exercise and they meditate and they eat a smoothie and they, they do all these things. You're like, That's, this is what successful people do. But friends, as Christians, as, as people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live for him, what should our days be marked by? I think the same way as Noah, he came out of the ark, a new beginning, he built an altar. Every day we start a new day because God is faithful. That's why the day has come. We should stop and give thanks to God. Stop and praise him. Does he, have a Does he have a song in your heart that you can sing to him? That's how we should begin. Every time we come up a trial doing that, but really every day, every new beginning with prayer and praise. We see here in response to this in Genesis chapter eight, after Noah built the altar, and put those animals on a burnt offering to the Lord, verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is beginning. God's making a covenant with Noah. We're looking at that next week. And then God says this, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Or it talks about the Lord smelling the pleasing aroma and saying in his heart. Again, this is an anthropomorphism, just a fun word to say, anthropomorphism. Remember we talked about what that is? It's, it's ascribing to God human characteristics, that God smelled the pleasing aroma. 
It was a sacrifice to the Lord. But then, what does it say about the, uh, what does God say? I'm not gonna curse the earth again. He's like, I'm not gonna bring a global flood and judgment and such an extent upon man. Even though his heart is evil from his youth. Like, man's heart hasn't changed. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why we need to follow Jesus so that God's spirit can come in us and our hearts can be changed. But God said, even though man's heart's not changing, I will never again curse the ground in this way. We know that in the future, Jesus is gonna return and there, there is gonna be judgment. But God's promising here not to destroy all living things. Again, has happened in the flood. And how do we know this guarantee is true? Where it says there in verse 22, as long as the earth remains, we'll see this regular cycle of life, again, showing God's faithfulness. It's spring, and we're moving into summer. Why? Because God is faithful, actually, that's why. We're, we're in the day right now, and tonight there's gonna be an evening, a nighttime. Why? Because God is faithful. This is what I read in scripture. I want to, I don't know about you, I want to continue to build a biblical worldview that I want to see the world and how it operates and how scripture describes. So even in the, the seasons, even in the day and night, I see here God's like, it's going to continue to go on because of him. So we can trust God is faithful. There are a number of things I want us to take from the word this morning. I want us to see, of course, that God is faithful. He remembers his promises. He is true to his word. He can be trusted. I want us to see again and again and again, the Bible is a historical book about real people and real places, and we can believe it. Friends, I hope you saw the, the universal symbol of peace being a pigeon and olive, olive branch, but more importantly, that the, the heart of the Christian symbol of peace is the cross, and it's not a, just a symbol, it's reality for those in Jesus Christ, peace. Hope you can see that God preserves his people through trials, and maybe a word you need to remember, maybe you need to hear today, and maybe it'll be in the days to come, but remember, God takes his people through trials. And then with Noah, we saw a pattern to follow, a new beginnings, praise and prayer to God in a great way to begin each day. So many things, if you just take one of those things with you, I pray the Holy Spirit would apply that to your hearts and seal it in you. If you'll bow with me as I close this time in praise, in prayer. Oh God. Lord, so much. Can we turn back and give you thanks? I thank you, Lord, even for little Marley, for the rhymers, just the excitement of, of young life, Lord, young families. Thank you for the work that you're doing in their lives, in our church, Lord, for a chance to proclaim your word. Oh God, I pray you'd seal it in our hearts. Again, that which is from you, oh Lord, may, we, may, we, may you bring to mind in the week to come. That which is not, may it just fall to the side. Oh God, continue to help us live out our faith in, in the days that we are in, oh God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.